The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Amen. Thank you, saints. Well, join with me as we continue to worship our great God by looking to His Word together. We will be in the book of James, chapter 2, picking up in our study together. And if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. And we've got one you can use during the sermon time. And actually, before you turn to James chapter 2, if you could actually go to, in your Old Testament, kind of at the beginning of the Bible, uh, 1 Samuel 16. Well, we have a great privilege to go through the book of James. We begin chapter 2, keeping in mind that when James wrote his wonderful little letter. He didn't write with chapter divisions and verse breaks. He didn't write the numbers in there. Just a a letter. Dear so-and-so, went all the way through just like we do today. Continuous discussion. Um, But we begin, before we actually look at James 2, I want you to look at 1 Samuel 16. And I want to read, and I want you to see it if you have your Bible, 6 through 11. And before we read the historical context is God had raised up a king for the first time in Israel. His name was Saul, King Saul. And his qualifications, according to the people, was that he was tall, dark, and handsome. Not different from the way we do things today in a lot of areas. And because his qualifications were to be tall, dark, and handsome, he was not a great king. And so God actually rejected Saul as king. And then God wanted to raise up and choose the second king of Israel that would be his man, God's man, someone who loved God. And that was King David. And so this uh, scene is the historical description of how God went about choosing David to be the second king of Israel. And he did it through using Samuel, who was uh, a patriarch and a, a judge and the man that God and a priest that God was using to lead the nation of Israel at the time through Samuel. And so Samuel goes to uh, the house of David, which is actually the house of Jesse. Uh, Jesse was a man who lived in Bethlehem. He had eight sons, at least eight. And the youngest of the eight sons was David. And at that time, he was a young, maybe junior higher whippersnapper, short, hasn't gone through puberty yet, probably. And here's the scene. So Samuel's going to pick uh, the second king of Israel. And so in Samuel's mind, uh, the king is going to be somebody who's tall, dark, and handsome, probably. And Uh, suited for the role. At least that's what Samuel thinks. But he's wrong. God has different ideas. And so this is a beautiful, real historical illustration of the topic in James chapter 2 of how God thinks and how man thinks or humans think. We think so differently, or I should say, God thinks so differently than we do. Many times. And so here's the scenario. Jesse, uh, Samuel makes it to Jesse's house, knocks on the door, looking for the next king. He knows it's going to be in the house of Jesse, one of the sons. And verse 6 says, Then it came about when they entered that he looked at Eliab, probably the oldest of the sons of Jesse. Probably, no doubt, tall, strong, great stature, tough, confident looking. So Samuel sees the first of the oldest sons, Eliab, and in his mind Samuel's thinking, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Bam! There it is. The next king of Israel. I can tell just by the way he looks. So the emphasis here is on outward appearance. And human judgment based on outward, external, superficial appearance. 
So Samuel's like, Eliab, he's the man. Verse 7, but, that's a huge adversative there. But the Lord, but Yahweh said to Samuel, no, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. You're looking at the wrong thing, wrong qualifications. Samuel, for God sees not as man sees, or for God sees not as humans see. For humans look at the outward appearance. That's just how we do things typically. But the Lord, or Yahweh, looks at the heart. And only God can see the motives anyway. Only God can see what is truly on the inside of a person. And that's what sets God apart from us as fallen, finite human beings. Verse 8, Then Jesse called his second son, Abinadab, and it made him pass before Samuel. And then Samuel said, Oh, and then God said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Verse 9, Next, Jesse made... He's probably going from the oldest son on down. That's probably what's going on here. Verse 9, Next, Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Verse 10, Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Wow. Oh, for seven. Verse 11, And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? Is this is it? Are these all your sons? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest. And behold, he's tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in, the youngest. He was ruddy. He was young. He was immature. He was shorter than the rest of them beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. So it was the, so what God did is He chose the youngest and the weakest of all of the brothers to be the next king, which is exactly the opposite of what Samuel would have done. He would have chosen the oldest, the wisest, the most mature, and the strongest. And that's how God does things many times. We make wrong assessments, a wrong diagnosis, a wrong judgment, because we are finite, we are fallen. And so now let's flip to James chapter 2. And that's a theme that James wants to pick up on. And even though it's a new chapter in our English Bible there, James chapter 2, verse 1, it's not unconnected with what immediately came before it because what immediately came before, which we talked about last week, is where James defined true and pure religion that pleases God. And the essence of what pleases God in pure religion is that we as believers would visit orphans and widows in their distress. In other words, that God has a heart of compassion and mercy towards the needy. And... These uh, And those that God has a heart for, the needy also are in the context of the beginning of chapter 2. It's widows, orphans, and the poor have a special place in God's heart. We're going to see that. So let's go ahead and read. I just want to cover the first four verses today. Even though the context will take us all the way up to verse 13, it's really one discussion, but we'll take it in two parts. Uh, starting at verse 1. James says, my brethren, and again, he's acknowledging that these are believers. Uh, These are people that he probably pastored in Jerusalem and now have been scattered abroad. Believers and professing believers, people who are in the church, people who have been born again. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our Lord, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes... And yet you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and you say, you sit here in a good place. And then you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? 
Well, those are some harsh words. That end of verse 4. Evil motives. Now, James is not just being hypothetical or theoretical here. He's bringing this topic up because no doubt this was happening in the congregations, in these churches that were spread abroad that are now 15 years old since Christ rose again from the dead. And James has probably visited churches and also has heard reports of how the churches are doing. And this has become an issue. It's become an issue so much in the churches. There was partiality going on and favoritism and the oppression of the poor in an illegitimate manner that James had to address it. He had to address it authoritatively as an apostle uh, sent from God and also with very strong language calling it evil. Pastor calling his congregation evil. Wow. So let's go ahead and look at it. I just broke it up into three points here of an overall theme that James is getting at, and that's on the issue of partiality in the church. Partiality. So uh, the first point I want to make there is just in the first verse, verse 1, and I call it the exhortation against partiality. The exhortation against partiality, or the command for Christians not to be partial. The command for believers to not be partial, especially and primarily in the church, in the corporate assembly, among the believers. To not be partial. It's a command. It's an exhortation. It is an obligation. It's not an option. And as we said last week, James has 59 at least imperatives in this short epistle where he is commanding believers to do this, to do this, to do this, and don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. So this is one of those negative imperatives where he says, do not do this. Do not do this. If you do this, this is sinful. Well, what is the sinful behavior that apparently was going on in some of the congregations among the true believers is that they were showing partiality. And as a result, in verse 1, he says, My brethren, fellow believers, do not hold your faith. Or literally, in the Greek text, it says, Stop being partial. And the way he says it in the present active imperative of the command is that apparently partiality was going on. It was happening. And so he's saying, Stop it. Quit doing that present tense, and continue, stop doing it. Don't allow it, is the idea. This should not ever be seen in the church. But before we get into more detail, we need to define what partiality is. Uh, As a matter of fact, if you looked at several English translations, you're going to get different words in the translation. Some will say, stop showing partiality in the church or among fellow believers. Some will say, stop showing favoritism towards certain people over against other people. The King James, I think, says stop showing respect of persons for one another among the believers. And that's exactly what partiality is. It's showing favoritism of one group or one person over another group for illegitimate reasons, for superficial reasons, shallow reasons, usually based on like appearance or the externals or only the things that we see, but not based on the truth of what's really going on, not considering what's going on in the heart or what God's plan is. So it's showing favoritism, showing preferential treatment for somebody for wrong reasons. And many times it's showing preferential treatment for somebody else so that we can gain an advantage by showing preferential treatment to that somebody else. That's really what's driving this. That's why we're preferential. We do this all the time. Or we see it a lot in the world, right? Somebody likes to tell about the famous person that they met or the famous person that they know as though that elevates their status somehow, right? It's what we can get out of it in the end. And so that's really at the heart of favoritism, partiality. It's also being prejudiced. It's being biased against other people and preference for others for illegitimate reasons. So that's partiality. Showing favoritism towards one person or another group in an illegitimate manner and shutting down another group. 
in a sinful manner. And so that's what's going on. And that's what's actually going on in the church. Wow, this goes on in the church? This goes on in true churches? Yeah, it does. Because churches are filled with sinful people, aren't they? I'm a sinner. Every believer is a sinner battling with sin. So this is just basic to the sinful fallen character of humanity is showing partiality and favoritism towards those that we like or those that we prefer. And it's basic command in Scripture, and that's not just in the New Testament, all throughout Scripture. This is the very heart of God is that we should not be showing favoritism towards people. A couple of verses I want you to actually look at. Um, Deuteron- yeah, if you go to Deuteronomy, we'll look at two passages, one verse and then one passage about when God gave the law to the Israelites through Moses, after 40 years, Moses reiterated the law just before his death, before the two million Jews entered into the promised land. And he reiterated the entire law of what God required of his people. And that's in the book of Deuteronomy, the second law that was given. And in the very first chapter, this theme arises in chapter 1 of Deuteronomy. So if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 1, and then we'll go to chapter 15 in just a second. Uh, Deuteronomy 1.17. So this is God speaking through Moses to the Jews, reminding them of what they are obligated to do and not to do in honoring God as they live their life in the promised land. In verse 17, he says, You shall not, you shall not show partiality in judgment. In other words, you shouldn't prefer some people over other people for illegitimate reasons. Everybody needs to get an equal hearing. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. See, there it is. You can't get, show favoritism towards somebody because they have a higher status or they make more money or they're liked and popular and then disregard those who are the opposite of all of those things. So this is a basic command all throughout Scripture and from God. Uh, you don't need to turn there, but Proverbs 24:23 says this. And Proverbs has many of these sayings that are reiterated. A basic command of godly living is to not show partiality. Uh, Proverbs 24:23 says, These are the sayings of the wise. To show partiality in judgment is not good. It's not good. It doesn't please God. Now go to Deuteronomy 15. And I I mentioned earlier that God has a special place in His heart for the oppressed, for the needy, the weak, specifically the orphans, the widows who are in their distress, and also the poor who are legitimately and indeed sincerely poor. And that's the context of Deuteronomy 15. By the way, we and in this context in James 2, he's going to refer to the poor that we shouldn't show partiality against. And he's talking about real poor people, legitimate poor people, especially in our assembly, in our midst, in our churches. He's not just talking about uh, the poor in general, the poor out in the world, the poor people that we don't know whether they're poor or not, because there are people who claim to be poor who are not poor. right? There are people who feign or fake being poor so that they get a handout. That happens. He's not talking about these people. He's, he's talking about really poor people that are legitimately poor, sincere needs, and specifically those who are in our community, in our believing community. They're, that's the priority. and That's the context of Deuteronomy 15. Let's go ahead and look at it. 7 and following. Uh, Moses says, or really God says, if there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, okay, he's a fellow Jew with legitimate, real needs, a fellow believer who believes in Yahweh God. So it's the believing community. If there's a poor man with you, one of your brothers, so he's in your midst, he rubs shoulders with you, he's in your immediate context, in any of your towns, in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand 
from your poor brother. Verse 8, But you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need and whatever he lacks. This is a fellow believer who is actually in need. Verse 9, Beware, or watch out, here's a warning, lest there is a base thought in your heart saying, well, the seventh year, the year of remission is near and your eye is hostile towards your poor brother. In other words, oh, the year of Jubilee is coming up, all uh, debts will be forgiven. Uh, he can survive for the next three months till that comes. He'll, he'll be okay. I don't need to give to his immediate need now. And you just kind of blow off his immediate need. Don't do that. God calls that hostile thinking. Wow. Hostile towards your poor brother and you give him nothing? Wow. Then he may cry to the Lord against you and it will be a sin in you. Verse 10, You shall generously give to him and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. You know, we have a benevolence offering four times a year here at this church at GBF. Four times a year, the fifth Sunday of the month. And really, that's what that benevolence offering is for, is to take it and to give to those in our believing community with real and legitimate needs. And this church, and I've thanked you before, has been very generous towards that. And we're able to bless many, so thank you for doing that. And if you have given generously to the poor or to the benevolence fund, look at the promise in verse 10. Verse 10, you shall generously give to him and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you. God will bless you. It's more blessed to give than receive. It is more blessed to give than receive. Isn't that a great promise? Jesus said that. It is more blessed to give than receive. Two weeks ago, I was at Chase Bank. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Two weeks ago, I was at a bank. And they got all their holiday decorations up and their motto for the holiday season, plastered, huge letters on the big wall right there. It said, it is more blessed to give and to take. I was thinking, wait, that is not how the verse goes. It is more blessed to give than receive. I never did figure out what they were talking about. But anyway, twisting Scripture. Um, But you shall generously give if you do. uh, God will bless you in all of your work and in all your undertakings. Man, you want to be blessed by God? Be a generous giver and particularly being a generous giver to those who are legitimately poor and have a need. Verse 11, for the poor will never cease to be in the land. Wow, Jesus said that the poor will always be with you. Jesus didn't make it up. He got it from Scripture. The poor will always be with you. Therefore, I command you, saying you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your hand. And the early church did this in an exemplary manner. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, we see it modeled. We need to continue to follow that model. Meeting the needs of the poor, of the needy, in our believing community and making it a priority. If we do, God will bless us as a result. If you do, God will bless you as an individual. Point being, I just wanted you to see the heart of God here. Because the issue at hand in James chapter 2 is people in the church showing partiality and preferential treatment, looking down their nose on the poor in the congregation. Which is the exact opposite of what God told Moses and his people in Deuteronomy chapter 15. So the last, staying in Deuteronomy, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 10. So we know what partiality, it's showing favoritism or preferential treatment. Uh, we know it's a basic command all throughout Scripture and commanded by James into to the church. Stop being partial. By the way, in the Greek text, the command to not be partial is at the very beginning of the verse. That means uh, James put it in an emphatic position when he wrote it out. Most English translations put the command at the end of the verse. It belongs at the beginning of the verse. Although I should say this, the ESV gets it right. The command comes first. 
James is being emphatic. Christian, do not be partial in the assembly. So going back to uh, Deuteronomy 10, so well, why should we not be partial? Why shouldn't we show favoritism? Well, the main reason really and the main motive uh, is because God doesn't show favoritism. God does not show favoritism or partiality. He is not biased. He is not prejudiced. He doesn't make superficial, shallow judgments. He doesn't pigeonhole people. That drives me crazy when people pigeonhole other people or when somebody tries to pigeonhole me or pigeonhole you. That is so narrow and myopic and illegitimate. And God doesn't do that. He is the model, and that's the motive why we shouldn't be doing it because of the heart of God. So look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. All these attributes of God. Verse 17, For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who does not show partiality. There it is. He doesn't show partiality. You know, when you think about it, impartiality, fair treatment of all people in terms of how God views sinners, impartiality is an attribute of God. And that struck me this week because I'm thinking of all the books I've read on theology and the attributes of God, like J.I. Packer's Knowing God. It's just a book on all the attributes of God. Rarely do I see those books list impartiality as one of the very specific attributes of God. But it is. It's a good thought. It's amazing. It's, the very, it's His very nature. He is not impartial. He doesn't show favoritism. Uh, Deuteronomy, or actually Romans chapter 2, verse 11 reiterates this truth about God in your New Testament. You can go back to James now. And then I'll just read Romans chapter 2, 11 to you. And basically, uh, Paul's telling us we need to treat everybody the same, Jew and Greek. And the reason is, is because, verse 11, there is no partiality with God. That's the basis. That is the motive. We need to be like God. We need to act like God. We need to imitate God because we profess to believe in God. We profess to know Christ. Uh, so that's the motive. We need to be like God. And we have the power and the ability to do that because we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ by virtue of salvation in Christ. Which, if you go back to James chapter 2, by the way, I don't want to skip over that very important point. My brethren, do not be uh, partial. And the New American Standard says it this way. My brethren, fellow believers, do not hold your faith, your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's saying, you became a Christian by faith in Christ, not by works. By faith in Christ is how you came to know Jesus Christ personally. And by the way, he adds a, an apposition there or a description of Jesus. Further, he calls uh, our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he literally says the glory or the glorious one. That's literally what the Greek text says. It calls Jesus the glory. Some translations say our glorious Lord, but literally it is the glory. What is that? That comes right out of the Old Testament where it referred to Almighty God of the universe as the glory. And what was the glory? The glory is one of, a very specific word that encapsulates, encapsulates all the attributes of God and are manifested in a visible manner. Of all the glory that makes up God and what makes God God is encapsulated in that word glory. And here James calls Jesus Christ the glory, the Almighty God, the glorious One. Isn't that awesome? That is the deity of Christ. And it was faith in that Lord Jesus Christ is how we became a Christian. And because we are Christians, we are to live like Christ and have the heart of God and God's heart towards the poor is, or towards all men is not showing partiality and as a result, there's no room in the church or among believers to show partiality for any reason whatsoever. So he says, stop doing it. 
and don't do it and don't let it be a habit of your life. So that is the exhortation against partiality. And then he gives an illustration, and that's number two. The illustration of showing partiality in verses 2 and 3. And here's his illustration that they could all relate to. It's very simple. There are many ways, by the way, you can show partiality and favoritism. You could show partiality and favoritism by preferring one gender over another or by preferring um, looks over another or wealth over something else, uh, one race over another. So there's many ways to be prejudiced and biased. And he just gives one example of the way uh, we can be partial or show favoritism, and that's verse 2 and 3. So let's look at it. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring, really a gold-fingered man. In other words, he could have many rings on his fingers. And actually, that was typical. Wearing many gold fingers on your hand, and it was a statement you were making. It was a fashion statement. I own a lot of property. I own a lot of wealth. I've got a lot of slaves. Look at me. Gold-fingered man. He's dressed in fine linen. Literally, dressed in shiny clothes, glowing clothes, sequins, if you will. Shiny clothes, but it was brand new and it was expensive. And in the Jewish community, and that's who he's talking to, this is typically with very expensive linen white robes, glowing, pristine, beautiful. So there's a man that comes into your assembly. He's, got, he's glittering all over the place, probably in his teeth too, and he's got fine linen in his beautiful robes. And you see this and you're awed by it and you're impressed by his wardrobe because it tells you of his status and his wealth and his bank account. And there also comes, by the way, verse 2, for if a man comes into your assembly, the literal Greek word there is into your synagogue. Synagogue. Literally. And that's important because this reminds us and tells us that yes, James was the first book written in the New Testament. This was before the ministry of the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles. This is... uh, And the epicenter of this was in Jerusalem where the majority of believers were Jewish converts, Jewish Christians. And when a Jew became a Christian in the early church, he didn't just abandon the temple. He didn't just abandon the synagogue and say, I want nothing to do with Jewishness anymore. So actually what happened is when there was salvation in certain cities, like in Berea, Paul went and preached in the synagogue, which was filled with Jews who loved the Old Testament. And Paul preached, and it says, many came to believe in Jesus Christ and they got saved. That Jewish synagogue turned into a Christian synagogue. Then they had church service there. So we know that from the early church, that Christians were still meeting at times in, in synagogues that had become believing synagogues. And so that's why most English translations say in the assembly, because the word synagogue literally means assembly. Most of the time in the New Testament and the Gospel, it means literally the building of the synagogue. One English translation, unfortunately, says if someone comes into your church. It doesn't mean church. That's not the Greek word. There's a specific word for church. That is not the word. So it's assembly of the Jewish believers in the Christian synagogue. That's where this is happening. So this is a public worship service, what we would call church today. So that's why it's apropos for us. So if somebody comes into your assembly or your church and they are, or your gathering of the believers and he's dressed, you give him preferential treatment. And, as, and then there's another person that comes in. It doesn't say whether they're saved or not saved. It could be they're just visitors. It could be that they're saved. They're fellow believers from other regions or areas. One is dressed nicely. And the end of verse 2 says, one of them comes in and he's a poor man and he is in dirty clothes, filthy clothes. He is in rags. And it's noticeable and you can smell it. And then verse 3, here's their partiality. And you, plural, pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes. Wow, look at that guy. 
He, he wears nice clothes. He's nice and clean. He's got gold all over the place. He's probably a, a very good giver to the church. Ooh, a potential giving unit. Hey, let's talk to that guy. Let's welcome him. Let's make him feel warm. Let's allow him to go to the fellowship meal and have two desserts. Probably a really good guy. So they're catering to this guy in preferential treatment. And then they see this other guy uh, who is not, who's literally, he is poor and it's noticeable. It's obvious by virtue of the way he's dressed. And, the, and these church people give preferential treatment to the rich guy. And they say to the rich guy, here you sit in the good place. Hey, take the front row or the second row or any seat you want. The seat of honor. They don't even know this guy and they're giving him honor that he doesn't deserve. And then the poor man in his shabby clothes, they say, hey, you stand over there. Hey, there, there's a lobby over there. And actually, if you stay close to the door and keep the door open, that'd be better for us. You won't smell up the place. Literally, that's what they're doing. They're probably more dignified about it. Make it look more religious and Christian-y. So it's not so obvious, but that's what's going on. So this is just categorical, wrong, sinful, favoritism, preferential treatment, giving to two people who are probably two potential believers in the local church on a given Sunday in a day of worship. And apparently this was going on on a routine basis and just got out of hand and James needs to rebuke it, and he does. And so that's his illustration. It's an illustration that we can relate to. It's an illustration that I have seen in the church, in the churches that I have worked at as a pastor and churches I've attended, unfortunately, I've seen it at at least two churches where I actually worked giving preferential treatment for somebody who made moolah over somebody else who didn't make money. And on two occasions, the way it manifested itself is the the guys that made money and they were influential businessmen and they were movers and shakers in the community and people feared them and were oohed and awed by them, they would be brought in quickly to consider leadership in the church and sit on the board. Really? They didn't look at 1 Timothy 3 for qualifications of why this man is called by God, known by the people, with a shepherd's heart to lead God's people. That was not a qualification. It was his money, his wealth, his reputation, his influence. That was totally illegitimate. And I've been a part of churches, unfortunately, where believers and Christians and churches have looked down their nose at poor people or people who don't dress as nice, especially in areas like where we live, the Silicon Valley, where it's expected. So this is a real threat to our church. And every single one of us is vulnerable or susceptible to either this manifestation of partiality or other kinds of partiality or favoritism that I mentioned earlier, whether it's your prejudice towards certain people because of their race, where they are from, their gender, their socioeconomic status, their job, their career, whatever it is. And we need to guard against that as Christians. And so that's what James is trying to get across to us. And especially don't despise the poor in preference for rich people because the very heart of God has that special place for legitimately poor people. By the way, this was going on in the Jewish Christian community over the course of 15 years, I think, because before these Jews got saved in the Jewish community, we know that there was a a stratified or like a caste system of sorts in the Jewish community. We know that from the Gospels. They have these layers of a socioeconomic status. You can see that in the prayer of the Pharisee where he separates himself. He's in the highest echelon of the kind of people that please God. And I'm glad I'm not like this and a woman and a tax gatherer and a sinner. All these lower echelon of people. And in the Jewish community that was true. 
The Pharisees, they were the elite ones, the set-apart ones, literally the pure ones. So that was the highest echelon. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leadership. And then below that, there were those who had money and wealth and society who catered to the Pharisees. And below that were just the masses, the Amhararits, they were called, the normal people. And below that were the poor, the needy, uh, the lame, and slaves. So they had this caste system. And unfortunately, probably what happened here is Uh, Christians got saved and then they carried over some of their biases, some of their old sins into their new Christian life. And we all do that, don't we? You ever look at your life and say, wow, I've I've carried over this sinful habit from my old life into my new life as a Christian. This nagging habit and it's hard to get rid of. Hard to cut the cords. God, help me. Give me grace. We do that. That's probably what was going on here. And so James needs to address it. He's a realist. By the way, I do need to make a couple of footnotes uh, about where James is saying, you know, you're elevating the poor for long, uh, I mean, elevating the rich for wrong reasons, and you're looking down on the poor, and you shouldn't do that. Uh, James is not saying, and God is not saying, that being poor is more spiritual. Because actually, some people believe that. Some Christians believe that. And some Christians throughout history have believed that, and that's why you have people who take a vow of poverty. Because a vow of poverty is seen at times as being more pleasing to God. I'm more spiritual than everybody else because. Uh, I'm taking a vow of poverty and I'm not into materialism and so I'm showing that I have a greater allegiance to God than those who don't take this vow. So that's been a stumbling block for believers all throughout history. God is not condemning uh, wealth in this verse. He's condemning partiality. So I don't want you to take away from the words of James today to think, wow, I can't dress nice at church anymore. No, that's not what he's saying. Actually, you, you should dress nice for church. To, to Why not? Dress the best for people you like or other people you honor, why not dress the best you can to honor God? So that's a freedom and a liberty that we have in terms of dress. So he's not condoning being poor or dressing frumpy as ultra-spiritual and then dressing uh, nicely as being condemned. That, that's not the issue at all. But just want to clarify that and make sure we got that straight. So that's the illustration. And no doubt it's an illustration that all of us can relate to. And so we've got the exhortation, don't be partial. The illustration gives one example, giving preference to those who are rich over those who are poor in terms of giving them higher places in your local church. And then finally, there's the condemnation for doing this practice. And that's point number three there in verse four. The condemnation of showing partiality. Condemnation, that comes from the word condemn. Condemn, that's a harsh word, isn't it? Condemn. A formal judgment manifesting the wrath and the anger of God. And it's appropriate for what he says in verse 4. Wow, if you do this on a regular basis, if you keep showing partiality this way in the church among believers, showing preferential treatment for superficial reasons, verse 4, and this is a rhetorical question, have you not made distinctions? Or literally, you have made distinctions. You have segregated believers illegitimately. You have segregated Falsely, people among themselves. You've made false distinctions. You've pigeonholed people in a wrong manner. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves? Clicks, if you will. You're not the body of Christ. Now you've made it into clicks, separating yourselves, creating disunity. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges? And then he tells us what's driving this. When people are being partial, showing favoritism, What's really driving that? Well, it's their heart and their motives, and it's also based on wrong thinking. And we're going to address that because he says that at the end of verse 4. Why are they doing that? 
Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges when there's only one judge and that is God? And James will talk about that later. We are not judges of people's hearts and motives. You become judges with evil motives. There it is. With sinful motives. And so that's what's driving this when we see partiality in the church. It is evil. It is sin. We need to identify it as sin. Diagnose it accordingly. Call it out. Confront it. Expose it, change it, see repentance to bring about and preserve unity. The condemnation, he calls it evil. By the way, I mentioned earlier at the very beginning, why, why are we partial? Why are we prejudiced? Why are we biased and preferential? Wrong motives, evil motives. I, I personally believe at the heart of preferential treatment for somebody else, it, it is self-centered thinking and living. It is totally self-serving to be partial towards somebody else. Because usually what's going on there is we're being partial towards somebody else so that we might put ourselves in a position of being blessed or being in an advantageous position later on as a result by virtue of our connections. That old saying, uh, it's not who you are, it's who you know. That's what it is. It's not who you are, it's who you know. And that's what's going on. Showing preferential treatment many times to see what we can get out of it. That's a wrong motive. That is a self-centered motive. It's advancing self. Uh, Another wrong motive that's going on here when we show partiality towards one group at the cost or the neglect of others is we manifest that we, we don't have a heart for people. We don't care for people. Really. John 3.16 God so loves the world. I personally believe that a component or element to that verse is that God loves every person that He created. He loves every person that He created. That's how Jesus treated everybody, right? Wherever He went all the time. The heart of Christ. He was not partial. He was impartial, caring for everybody. And so that exposes our motive. And so we've got to examine our motives. Wow, why am I giving preferential treatment to this person? And where's my heart at? Do I love and care for all people? Try this as an experiment. When I, first, I did this more routinely when I first got saved. When I was more evangelistic, had greater zeal, was more fired up, was more bold, was more courageous, was more forward-looking to the coming of Jesus Christ, was more sensitive to the spiritual things of God. And on a routine basis, if I was like at a football game in a huge stadium and there were 70,000 people, I, literally I used to think, wow, God made every single one of these people He made them in His image. He desires that they would all repent and be saved. Every single one of these people needs the Gospel. That's how I used to think and assess people. And that was from God because that's how God thinks. Every person being treated the same. Or go to the mall as you're walking through the mall through the holidays and you see just this mass of people instead of complaining about how many they are and you're claustrophobic and you didn't get what you wanted, stop and buy a pretzel and just eat and observe the masses of humanity and hopefully in your mind at some point think that every single one of these people was made in the image of God. Every single one of these people, Jesus would look at the masses and weep over their souls. We, we need to do the same thing, don't we? So that's part of the wrong motives. Uh, a lack of love and care for people. Another one that uh, is mentioned in the Old Testament is we're partial because we fear man. We want to be a man pleaser, a human pleaser. I want to please that person and they don't like this person, therefore I can't like this person. And I want to please that person and that person likes that person, therefore I need to like that person. 
That also is an illegitimate sinful motive of what feeds partiality. Also, there is wrong thinking, as I said, that drives partiality, that drives the wrong motives. I alluded to it, and that is we don't see every single human being made in God's image all the time. James is going to talk about that in chapter 3. That's how we need to view every single human being. Paul said he did that in the book of Corinthians. He viewed every single human being as a spiritual entity, either saved or lost. Every human being made in God's image. And that's how we need to view every person. Whether they're a believer or an unbeliever, every single human being, we need to first and foremost see that as a creation of God, made in the image of God, and because they're made in God's image, they are therefore valuable to God. And that needs to be our heart, reflecting the heart of God. So we need to change our thinking. And also, if it's we're showing partiality towards people who are believers in the church, we need to change our thinking, uh, keeping in mind, like the Apostle Paul reminded us, that there are no distinctions among true believers. Uh, and I want you to, in closing, I want you to go with this. Galatians, look at Galatians chapter 3. Just a beautiful verse. So Paul says among Christians, among believers, we actually all stand on equal ground, don't we? The equal ground is that we're all sinful, saved by grace. That's what makes all believers equal before God. We're all sinful, worthy of death and hell, saved by the grace of God, contributing nothing on our own. And once we're redeemed, we all still stand on the same plane before God as believers, and that's verse 28, Galatians 3.28 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Okay, so ethnicity doesn't matter in the church. You shouldn't make a a deal out of race in the church because it's not an issue with God. Because we all come from Adam and Eve. It could very well be that Adam and Eve were different races, really, literally. So every race comes from God. We all have the same parents, Adam and Eve. And salvation in Jesus Christ bypasses the ethnic distinction anyway. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. That's socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter what your job is, how much you make. If you're a a street cleaner or a sanitation trash guy or a corporate CEO, if you're a believer before God, you're equal before God in the eyes of God. Socioeconomic status, that's what he's talking about there. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free as a believer. And there's neither male nor female. See? God doesn't like men more. He doesn't like women more. If you're a believer, He likes us all, loves us all as His children. And here's the clincher at the end of verse 28. Why is this a reality for believers? Because you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all one. Equally valued, equally cherished, equally loved by Almighty God. So how should we view every single unbeliever we ever see? We should view them as made in the image of God blinded by Satan, totally lost in darkness with a heart of compassion, needing the gospel and salvation in Christ. That should be our heart for every unbeliever and see them all the same. How should we see every believer as we walk through life? A sinner saved by grace. One in Christ Jesus. A saint, a holy one, every single one of us. A priest before God, every single one of us. A member of the body of Christ, a valued, important member of the body of Christ, and a child in the family of God. That's the proper perspective, and that will eradicate all partial thinking in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives, and and with God's blessing in our church. Let's go ahead to the Father.
and commit our time to him in prayer as we get to prepare our hearts now for uh, communion, being reminded of what he did in Christ our Lord. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning and thank you for your word, scripture, again, that you have preserved so graciously for us. Thank you for the teacher of the Holy Spirit that allows us to understand it and also allows us to apply it to our life in real and practical ways. Thank you for this great truth of partiality that is a part of our life all the time, every single day. We struggle with it. We battle with it as sinners. God, we need your heart. We need your perspective. We need your thinking. So God, change our thinking. Empower us through the Holy Spirit to have obedient thinking. Allow us to not tolerate partiality at Grace Bible Fellowship in our local church family, that we would have a heart of love and compassion towards everyone, unbelievers made in the image of God and believers remade in the image of Jesus Christ by virtue of His death and resurrection. And that You would continue to preserve the unity in this body. All for Your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.